On March 11, 2011, a magnitude 9.1 earthquake struck off the east coast of Japan. It was the strongest quake ever recorded in Japan. A massive tsunami followed. This is from our camera reporter in Miyagi. And it looks, and it looks like the tsunami has engulfed several cities. The solid wall of water peaked at almost 130 feet high. Nearly 20,000 people died. The giant wave crashed into a 1,200-mile stretch of Japan's coastline, including the east coast of Honshu Island. There, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station took a direct hit. The tsunami wiped out the plant's emergency generators. Fuel rods are now exposed, and if they stay that way, they could release radioactivity and a disaster of unknown proportions. Though on the coastline of an earthquake-prone country, Fukushima's emergency power supplies were not in watertight containers. Soon, the plant's operators could not pump water to cool the reactor. The plant's reactors went into meltdown. Within three days, all three cores were almost completely melted. An uncontrolled release of dangerous radioactive pollution into the air forced 164,000 people to evacuate their homes. Fukushima was the worst nuclear disaster since Chernobyl. Twelve years later, though, Fukushima's story is not yet over. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Fukushima and nearby areas have been closed for a dozen years. The damaged fuel rods and core still need to be continuously cooled with water. So in August, the Japanese government and the plant's operators announced that they would begin dumping treated radioactive wastewater, which had been building up on the site for more than a decade, into the Pacific Ocean. Protesters in Japan and neighboring countries recoiled at the plan. You just heard a protest from South Korea, where thousands took to the streets last month. Health advocates and the fishing sector, too, worry about the impact of the wastewater. When they release the wastewater, I think we won't be able to sell our fish at the main market again. What happens to us then? That was one Fukushima fisherman speaking to PBS's NewsHour. Japan's government defends the plan, saying it can't store the treated wastewater any longer. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, also says the plan meets international safety standards. Tritium uh, is uh, present there in a very, very uh, low concentration, and it will be diluted even further to a point that it will be negligible. But the geopolitical impacts of this wastewater release have already been far from negligible. Politics has often roiled the public's understanding of nuclear safety. In this case, China is one of Japan's most vociferous critics, even as China regularly engages in the same practice of sending nuclear wastewater into the sea. So today, we want to better understand the science, the safety, and the global ripple effects of Japan's Fukushima wastewater release. 
We'll begin with Jim Smith. He's a professor of environmental science at the University of Portsmouth in the United Kingdom. He specializes in radioactivity. He studied the impacts of the Chernobyl meltdown since 1990, and he joins us from Portsmouth, again, in the UK. Professor Smith, welcome to you. Hello. So let's first off start with the most basic question, but I, I, I like to be sure that uh, that we and and our listeners have a common basis of understanding. Why is the Fukushima plant still closed, but still forming um, this radioactive wastewater? So initially after the accident, uh, water needed to be cooled. Uh, so the cooling water going through the reactors was initially put into the Pacific Ocean directly, but then since about 2012, it's been treated and stored. And this has been going on because the reactors are very slightly warm, and so they still need cooling. Uh, The other source of radioactive water is from the groundwater. So during the accident, groundwater on the site became contaminated, and the Japanese have been pumping out that contaminated groundwater to to prevent it from getting into the sea. And that water also has to be treated and stored. So since about 2012, the Japanese have been storing all this treated wastewater in about 800 giant tanks on the site containing about 1.3 million cubic meters of slightly radioactive water. Okay. So we'll, we'll come to the treatment in just a second. But when you say the reactors are still slightly warm, uh, I mean, in terms of nuclear technology, what does that mean? And does it mean that even after this this release of the treated wastewater, the reactor will still need to be cooled into the foreseeable future? Well, well the site will keep generating uh, smaller amounts, but significant amounts of wastewater. Um, the reactors stay warm because of the what we call fission products. So the things that uranium breaks up into when the reactors are operating still remain warm over years after the uh, after the accident. And so they'll be generating water for the coming decades, but at much smaller amounts than in the past and much less radioactive than in the past. Okay. So from my understanding, the radioactive elements in the wastewater pre-treatment include, uh, and correct me, of course, if I'm wrong, uh, we heard tritium. Is there cesium, yeah. strontium, other yes. things as well? Yes. So there's various things. There's things like carbon-14, which is a natural radionuclide. There's things like cesium-137, strontium-90 that are artificial. So they're only made by people in nuclear reactors and nuclear bombs. Um, So there's a a, a wide range of radioactive elements in the same way as there's a wide range of radioactive elements in in wastewaters from other nuclear sites. Okay. And so then... Unfortunately, we don't have the time to go into into much detail about the treatment process. But when you're treating radioactive water, kind of in generally, what does that mean? Um, well, they have a series of what we call ion exchange columns. So these are giant columns that contain chemicals which absorb the radioactive elements. And so things like radioactive cesium, radioactive strontium, plutonium, they all get Uh, absorbed in these columns and taken out very efficiently from the wastewater. And what you're left is what's called treated wastewater, which contains tiny amounts of these other elements because the treatment isn't 100% efficient. And it also contains a thing called tritium or tritiated water. And tritium is a 
a form of hydrogen. It's a radioactive form of hydrogen. And what happens in nuclear reactors is that a very small proportion of the water molecules in the reactor turn into tritiated water. So one of the hydrogens in the H2O turns into the radioactive form of hydrogen, mm. which is tritium. And the, the point about tritiated water is that it behaves chemically identically to normal water. And so it's pretty much impossible at this scale to separate the slightly radioactive water from the rest of the water. And just to give you an idea of that, in that, in that 1.3 cubic, uh, million cubic meters of water, there's about three grams of tritium. Three and grams separating of, that, yes. Okay. <laughs> of, of the tritium meaning of the, the, the tritiated hydrogen. Yes, okay. exactly, exactly. Okay. And that's pretty much impossible to separate. So what nuclear sites all over the world do is to uh, discharge that to a local river or lake or the sea. Okay. And so that tiny amount of tritiated hydrogen um, is verified in terms of that's how much is in the Fukushima treated wastewater? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and, and, and yeah, 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 carry on. Uh, forgive me. I'd like you to continue. Forgive me. Okay. Um, so what... Uh, the, the plan for Fukushima and what's already begun is that there will be 22 tera... So we measure radioactivity in a thing called a becquerel. So there'll be 22 tera becquerels, that's 22 with 12 zeros after it, of tritium discharged into the Pacific per year. And that sounds like a really huge number. But then if we look at other nuclear sites around the world, it's not such a huge number. So... There's a plant in China that emits about 100 terabecquerels per year uh, of tritiated water. There's one in the UK uh, that emits about 200 terabecquerels per year. There's one in France, uh, a reprocessing site, that discharges about 10,000 terabecquerels per year into the English Channel. So that's about 450 times greater than the Fukushima release will be. What's the and background this, this, radiation in the Pacific Ocean? Is, it, is, that a, is that a relevant measure even? Well, it, it, it is. Um, so it's quite hard to do comparisons because the number's so big because the Pacific's so big. But um, for example, um, I'm going to introduce another unit, which is even bigger, which is called the Petabecquerel. So that's <laughs> a, a one with 15 zeros after it. So in the Pacific, there are 3,000 Petabecquerels of tritium. And in all the tanks at Fukushima, there's about one petabecquerel. Okay. Um, uh, but tritium isn't the biggest radioactive element in the Pacific. Um, there are 7.4 million petabecquerels of radioactive potassium-40, which is a, a natural radioactive element like tritium. Uh, there's 3,000 petabecquerels of carbon-14. There's 22,000 petabecquerels of uranium. So the Pacific is already slightly radioactive. I see. And what, what will be added every year by Fukushima won't, won't be noticed beyond a few kilometers from the pipeline. Okay, we have to take a break in about 30 seconds, Professor Smith. But just briefly, those columns that you mentioned that remove the yeah. other radioactive materials, yeah. how are they disposed? Because well, it sounds like those are actually more dangerous. What happens to them? Well, they'll have much more concentrated radioactivity than the water will, and they'll be buried. Okay. Um, that's the usual plan. It'll be either, depending on how active they are, they'll either be in a, a low-level kind of surface disposal site, which I, I imagine they will be. Okay. Um, really high-level radioactivity is, 
is planned for underground storage in most countries. I see. So today we're trying to understand the science and the geopolitics of Japan's decision to release tritiated water or radioactive water from the Fukushima nuclear plant into the Pacific Ocean. We'll hear in a moment from a scientist who doesn't think it's a great idea. And then we'll move to the geopolitical question. So stay with us. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today Jim Smith joins us. He's a professor of environmental science at the University of Portsmouth in the United Kingdom, specializing in radioactivity. And we're talking about the science, and then a little bit later in the show, we'll talk about the geopolitical implications but of Japan's decision to release treated radioactive wastewater from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Um Professor Smith, just so that um, you say it clearly and not me, are you uh, that in support of uh, the decision to release uh, the wastewater? And do you not believe that it poses any danger to sea life, uh, human life, or uh, the environment uh, around uh, that portion of Japan's uh, coastline? I'm absolutely in support of this. I think it's the right decision. It's what nuclear sites all over the world have been doing for decades, and we haven't seen significant impacts. Um, The doses to people will be about one microsievert per year to people consuming seafood from that area, and that compares to about 2,400 microsieverts uh, from natural background radiation to the whole world's population. It compares with 1,800 in the US from medical diagnostic procedures to each person every year. Um, It's really very trivial. Um, And in terms of the Pacific ecosystem itself, we've studied lakes at Chernobyl, including the cooling pond of the reactor, and looked at uh, fish and aquatic invertebrates, so the small insects living in the sediments of those lakes, and we haven't seen significant impacts of radiation. So the fish, we think we see some um, damage uh, to reproductive organs in one species of fish, but it's really very subtle and it's not preventing the fish from reproducing. The fish population is diverse. The aquatic insect population is as diverse as, and healthy 
as in other lakes in the region. So even mm. in Chernobyl, and we've studied this for decades, we find it very hard to see significant radiation impacts on fish at oh. levels which are thousands of times higher than this Fukushima release will be. Okay. Uh, I'd like to just very briefly go through some of the other options uh, that yeah. the plant's owners may have had but chose not to pursue. Um uh, again, just briefly, almost like a bullet list yeah. here. So so first of yeah. all, why not just leave it there? Because I understand that tritium has a half-life of just a dozen years. It's not like a 10 million year half-life. You could ostensibly just leave it there for, I don't know, 60s. You'd have to... Go ahead. Yeah, you'd have to you'd have to keep it there for decades. Yeah. And because the water's still being generated, you would have to keep building tanks and they're just basically running out of space on the site. And why do they um, the need the point, space, though? But why do they need the space? Well, they need to get on with decommissioning the reactors on the site, which I think is a more important issue. The other issue is that tanks can leak. You can have another earthquake, tsunami, typhoon that will uh, that would cause an uncontrolled leak of radioactivity. So okay. I think I don't think that's the best option. So even if though Trodina has a relatively short half-life in comparison to others, it is taking up space and preventing the decommissioning of Fukushima. Okay, that's interesting. Exactly. Um, what about... Could the the tritiated water just be um, used to create, I don't know, giant concrete blocks, let's say, and bury those in the ground, much as the columns that you were talking about <laughs> earlier would be? Well, well, that's been suggested, but that would, I mean, producing concrete um, causes evaporation. So after the Three Mile Island accident in the U.S., uh, tritiated water was evaporated, and a subsequent study found that that led to higher doses, about 300 times higher doses to people than there would have been if the tritium had been discharged into the local river. And so I'm not saying it's not possible, but at this stage, it's not used, it's not done by any other nuclear site around the world. And it's certainly untested. And I would expect it to lead to bigger doses to the operators than will be from this release to the sea. I see. Okay, so don't evaporate it. Don't try to get it into concrete. Um, not uh, It's taking up space, so you not just leave it there. Are, are there any other options that could have been plausible for Fukushima? Um, I think they tried a, a, a kind of way of separating the tritium from the ordinary water, and that's been tried at very small scale and worked, but it's very energy intensive. It's extremely expensive and it's not feasible at this scale, which is why nobody in all those nuclear sites around the world does it. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, because it's always, uh, so the, the null choice is only one of them, right? I just wanted to exam uh, yeah. hear, yeah, get yeah, the yeah. pros and cons of the other possible um, ways yeah. to deal with this situation. Um, so, Professor Smith, ho hold on for just a second, because while it seems that uh, generally the scientific consensus is, as you uh, said, that the uh, the danger is relatively yeah. low, it's not a 100% consensus. And so we did want to give voice to uh, some scientists who can, who continue to have concerns about the wastewater, treated wastewater release from Fukushima. 
Ken Bissler is a senior scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, and he's studied radioactivity from the Fukushima site for more than a decade. He's skeptical about Fukushima's wastewater release plan. Now, that wastewater is currently stored in nearly a thousand tanks at the site. And we've just discussed some alternatives that the Japanese government had to releasing the treated wastewater into the ocean. And there's one of those that Bissler actually agrees with. And he'd rather have them do that because he's not confident that those tanks we just talked about can be treated adequately. I don't think they've released enough data on what's in the tanks and the reliability of their cleanup system to give it the blanket okay from my perspective. The purification system called ALPS, the advanced liquid processing system that they've had, and they can show in one or two tanks that it's been sufficient to bring levels below operational standards, but they've had 12 years and two-thirds of the tanks are still above those limits and they already have been treated by the same, or at least a version of ALPS. So I've been always saying, why don't they treat the water first? Basically, I don't think they've demonstrated that they've cleaned up this water in 12 years. Why should I assume they can clean it up in the next 30 plus years that this is going to be going on? Now, there are other options, as we just discussed uh, with Jim Smith, and one of them Bissler supports, and that is to solidify the wastewater. A simple way would be to make concrete. Concrete is people may know is often used to shield us from radioactive materials. And so by embedding the tritium in a concrete matrix, it certainly would have a lifetime of 40, 50 years to allow both for decay and the additional benefit of shielding. And up and down that coastline, tsunami barriers are being built en masse with these big (laughs) multi-bus-sized concrete blocks. And so there's a demand for concrete And I think that's something that could be done, at least the engineers I've talked to, could be done safely. Perhaps most importantly, Ken Bissler is a marine scientist, and he thinks overall what the Fukushima plan indicates is that human beings continue to see the ocean as a dumping ground, and he wants that to stop. It's just this also a precedent that, you know, we're slowly adding more and more pollutants in the ocean, and... We're not allowed to dump radioactivity, by the way, in the ocean, say, from a ship. Operational nuclear power plants are allowed at some level to put radioactivity in the ocean, but they're providing a basic electricity function. Now, there's a benefit from nuclear power. That's not the case here. This is an accident site. There'll never be power generated at Fukushima Daiichi. But Japan is choosing what radioactive waste in a pipe in the ocean. And that's really what I object to. That's Ken Bissler, senior scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Professor Smith, I'm going to give you one last chance here. Would you like to respond to Professor Bissler's concerns? Uh, yes, I would. Yes, I would. Um, I, the, the, the concrete option, people don't tend to like radioactive concrete. Generally, when we try and dispose of radioactive elements on land where people are walking, living, people don't like it. Uh, So that's another reason, apart from I'm not sure it's technically feasible uh, not to do it in this case. Um, I don't think I've asked scientists like Ken Boosler what the evidence is that this is a significant risk to the to the Pacific. And I haven't had any evidence. There's no evidence from all the decades of similar releases, actually much higher releases. um, And I don't see why people are particularly picking on Fukushima. And it's not true that this is done 
only at generating electricity sites. It's done at reprocessing sites all over the world where waste is treated, and that's what the Japanese are doing here. I think from an environmental perspective, this is the best option, and we should be getting on with it and worrying about the real environmental problems in the Pacific, which are overfishing, plastic pollution, climate change, and sewage going into the Pacific. I, I think this is a distraction, and I think we should be getting on with it and not worrying about the really low radiation doses that it's going to incur. Mm. Well, Jim Smith is a professor of environmental science at the University of Portsmouth in the UK, specializing in radioactivity. He studied the impacts of the Chernobyl meltdown since 1990. Professor Smith, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you. Well, of course, a purely scientific perspective is not how the world works sometimes, but rarely. There's also the question of a political perspective, the issue of trust that people have between themselves and their governments, and also geopolitics as well, and how national decisions reverberate around the world with both allies and countries who are not allies. So with that in mind, I want to talk a little bit more about the political repercussions of the Fukushima decision within Japan and also in Asia more broadly. So first of all, there have been repercussions in Japan, uh, protests, as we discussed earlier, enough so that uh, the Japanese government has felt compelled to respond. For example, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida last week sat down for lunch with three of his cabinet ministers. On the menu, seafood, specifically sashimi, flounder, octopus, and sea bass, all caught off the coast of Fukushima. The idea was to show that the fish there was safe to eat, is safe to eat, even with the release of treated wastewater from Fukushima. So let's listen to that moment. This is one of those moments where, even though I love audio, we highly recommend you watch the video because it looks rather awkward. The prime minister there, you hear him eating the sashimi, nodding his head, and declaring the Fukushima fish, quote, delicious. Okay, so he's eating it on TV to make sure that people believe that the food is safe. I just want to jump back in history for a moment because that kind of uh, photo op is the go-to crisis PR management technique that politicians frequently use when issues of food safety come up. So let's jump into the on-point way-back machine and go back to 1990, one of my, uh, let's say, ironically favorite uh, pieces of political theater that came out of the United Kingdom, because back in 1990, concern about mad cow disease really reached a peak in the UK. And that year, UK Minister of Agriculture John Gummer tried in a photo op to feed his four-year-old daughter a hamburger. She tr- he tried to feed it to her. Let me emphasize that. But he tried to do it on national television while declaring British beef was, quote, completely safe. The agriculture minister, John Gummer, today enrolled his daughter Cordelia in his campaign to persuade people that eating beef is safe. It was a little hot for her. But later he munched it himself to prove to the world that he at least is confident there's nothing to worry about. 
There is no need for people to be worried, and I can say perfectly honestly that I shall go on eating beef because my children will go on eating beef because there is no need to be worried. Let's say it didn't work as he planned. I don't think the British public was ever fully convinced that they could go back to eating British beef in the immediate aftermath of mad cow disease. Well, joining us now is Naoko Aoki. She's in Washington. She's an associate political scientist at the Rand Corporation specializing in Northeast Asian security issues. Welcome to On Point. Thank you. So first of all, tell me a little bit more about why Japan's prime minister felt compelled to eat uh, Fukushima sashimi um, on, you know, on, on national television there. What is the current domestic climate in Japan um, about the wastewater release? Yes, of course. So um, I think the Japanese government is um, very concerned about this issue in the sense that uh, for a couple of reasons, there are people in the domestic public who are uh, concerned about the waste, wa- uh, the water release. And um, it's important for Japan, not just diplomatically, um, but also because it is trying to um, it, it's trying to restart some of the nuclear power plants that it stopped after the um, accident in Fukushima in 20, uh, 2011. So this is in trying to increase the nuclear energy mix um, to reduce carbon emissions, for example. So this is an issue that is very important for the Japanese government. I see. Now, remind me, um, in the aftermath of the Fukushima plant failure, um, I think there were some... Uh, there was some revelation that maybe the plant hadn't been, um, let's say, upgraded to be as uh, fully safe against earthquake or tsunami uh, as other uh, plants ar- around the world. Was there a um, a break in the trust between the Japanese people and not only the company that owned Fukushima, but the the government specifically around nuclear issues at that time? Yes, I think that's a fair point. Um, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, which was the operator, which is the operator, um, and the Japanese government um, were severely criticized. And um, I, it is, I think it is fair to say that trust, there's a lot of distrust even today in Japan toward um, both the government and TEPCO, as it is known, the Tokyo Electric Power Company. The good news is, though, that the Japanese co- public is not as, um, the, the, they trust the IAEA, for example, mm-hmm. more, um, a little bit more in terms of you know the standards in, in that and the the care and work that went into the um, release of the water so um it is there is concern um but there is some trust in the science behind it yeah the reason why I asked I'm glad you mentioned it was to you know uh, to use a, a badly formed metaphor here just as uh, the half-life of various radioactive materials is quite long I think people's memory about nuclear failures is also quite long so it sounds like this did stir up a little bit of that uh, that memory of distrust in in the in some of the Japanese people. Yes, I think that's a fair point, and this is one of this is again goes um, back to Japan's the job for the Japanese government. It's trying to increase the energy mix, uh, increase nuclear power in the energy mix um, to about twenty to twenty two percent by the end of the decade. So um, it's an important it's important for the government to regain that trust. Okay, and they're trying they're in the process of trying to do that. It sounds like yes. Okay, well Naoko Aoki, hang on for just a second because when we come back from the break, we want to look more broadly. Uh, around East Asia. 
Asia about what Japan is facing regarding international response to the decision to release that Fukushima-treated wastewater. So that's what we'll do when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're trying to understand in more detail the scientific and geopolitical implications of Japan's decision to uh, release treated wastewater from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant into the ocean. Naoko Aoki joins us today. She's associate political scientist at the RAND Corporation, specializing in Northeast Asian security issues. And I promised that we were going to go to uh, more international analysis, Naoko, but there's just one more thing about um, the sensitivity that ja- that the Japanese government has domestically about this that I wanted to clarify with you. Because um, I was talking about protests, but I, haven't there been one or two calls for resignation as well um, amongst uh, what, maybe even the, the fisheries minister in Japan? Because obviously fisheries are so hugely important for the country. Yes. Um, so, I yes, there was. Um, that was after he, um, the minister basically uh, commented that, that called the water um, contaminated water. And for that, um, there were calls for resignation. Um, but ultimately, he was retained in the post, uh, post because um, fisheries is, as you can imagine, um, a, an area, a field that is uh, that has taken a hit because of this. And um, so he so the prime minister, um, Prime Minister Kishida decided to um Keep him in place. Okay. Now, so that brings us to, again, the more broad importance of fisheries uh, to Japan, given um, its industry, not just domestically, but but internationally. We started the hour with protests, quite large protests in South Korea uh, against the Fukushima plan. Um, the concerns there were environmental safety, human safety, perhaps fears over the uh, seafood that Japan... Um, exports to places around the world? Yes. So there's a great deal of concern in South Korea, uh, particularly among the public. The The South Korean government, the administration right now, the conservative administration of um, President Yoon So-gil, 
um, has um, supported the IAEA report, and which basically said that it was safe to release the water. Um, President Yoon has been talking about the, um, you know, trying to basically say that there is no need for excessive concern. But of course, the opposition, the progressives are um, also putting pressure on the conservative um, pre president because there is concern um, it, among the public. So there's a political element there as well, although, of course, the concern among the public is real. I see. The concern is real. But as we heard from Professor Smith earlier, the concern may not 100 percent match um, the scientific consensus here. Just want, wanted to point that out. But I don't I still don't diminish the concern, right? Because politics has a lot to do with how people feel. And in a sense, um, Naoko, I, I'm looking at the situation um, as uh, really a chance to look more carefully at the relationship between four countries here. And let me know if we should add others to this mix. But obviously, Japan, South Korea, China, and North Korea. There's always a delicate balance there. Does um, Does this Fukushima story or decision ripple across the lines of connections between those countries? Yes, I think that's an interesting point. And the reactions of the countries that you mentioned, um, so China has been very, has had a strong reaction against uh, the release of the water from the beginning, calling it nuclear contaminated water, and it suspended all seafood import, imports j from Japan. So it has taken very strong measures. North Korea has also reacted strongly, calling it a crime. And of course, South Korea is... Um, treating it as a you know scientific matter at least the government is trying to um to um uh, prevent excessive concerns among its public so there's a little bit of that um there's a difference there definitely okay but so then so it sounds like the 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 big player that we should talk more about is is china right Mm -hmm. Okay. So this decision, how large um, is uh, the Chinese market for J Japanese fisheries? So um, Japan is, uh, for Japan, China is the biggest export, uh, trade partner. <laughs> it's the biggest exporter and uh, destination for exports as well as, um, you know, the, where imports come from. So it's anything regarding China is an, a very, you know, economically important for Japan. Um, I think there's a political element here as well, because um, there are two elements here in terms of what China is trying to do, I think. Um, we don't know for sure, but I think the um, it's kind of fair to say that there's a little bit of the venting of domestic frustration going on here. Um, China has food security and environmental problems of its own that people are really concerned about. And the Chinese government has been talking about this danger of this water, so it needed to take measures in a way. Um, but it probably doesn't want the anger to be, um, you know, directed toward the Chinese government. Another um, element, which is diplomatic, is it's trying to pressure Japan, I think. Um, Japan has been taking stronger measures against China, particularly in terms of like limits to exports related to um, advanced semiconductor related items, um, generally siding with the United States on these matters. So um, th that's another dyna dynamic that is probably um um, in play here. Oh, tell me a little bit more about that, because help me understand what you're saying, that Japan being you know, one of the pillars, yeah. let's say, of the international so, order mm -hmm. in the East, China is, you're saying that China is seeing this as a, 
uh, as an opportunity, uh, a political opportunity? Yeah, so Japan is um, basically Japan's security policy is, you know, Japan is an ally um, with the United States um, and it's a treaty ally with the United States. And also it's been talking a lot about um, the importance of rules-based international order and um, that it does not want revisionist powers to try to change the status quo with um, military force in particular. So this, from the Chinese perspective, that sounds like an anti-China, you know, it sounds like anti-China rhetoric. And Japan has been um, siding with the United States on certain things like what I I just mentioned, this advanced semiconductor related items, the exports to China that is limiting the exports. So um, this is an opportunity, I think, for China to make a point. Mm, Okay. Now, obviously... The pole of of uh, conversational gravity, if I can put it that way, makes me want to ask: Well, um, you know, is the United States noticing? Is this even actually something the United States would or should care about? Yeah, um, generally the dynamics I think um, is important. You know, the the political dynamics is of course important for the United States. Um, I would also note that um, China, although it has reacted very strongly. I think there are signs that the Chinese government may be trying to bring the temperature down. And I guess I think this is partly because of what I said earlier. It does not want the domestic frustration to be targeted at the Chinese authorities themselves. And I say that I just mentioned signs because, well, for example, a national newspaper called The Global Times talked about avoiding extremely emotional comments in its um, in its newspaper. Um, and also the um, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida met with um, Chinese Premier Li Chang um, uh, yesterday, and uh-huh. they did have a tense exchange, but it could have been a lot worse. So Okay. Well, so yeah, so hopefully the temperature is beginning to to go down a little bit. But you had said something earlier about, again, the the domestic challenges in in China. Um, And we also spoke with uh, uh, Shihoko Goto, who is acting director of the Asia program at the Wilson Center. Um, And Shihoko is actually mirroring something that that you were saying, um, that the misinformation and economic sabotage regarding those suspension of seafood imports imports from Japan uh, is a way for the Chinese government to distract its people from economic troubles. Right now, the Chinese economy is facing a great deal of pressure, and this is one way for the anger of the nation to be united against a common enemy. And right now, that's Japanese fish. And that can resonate and become this rallying point for the Chinese public. And certainly the CCP is is using that for its own gain. Well, Naoko, though, there was also, um, you mentioned propaganda, and I just said misinformation. Can you tell us in more detail what kind of misinformation or propaganda you see coming from the Chinese government regarding Fukushima? 
Yeah, it's difficult to tell whether this is government, you know, um, it was engineered by the government or um, social media things. But um, there have been, you know, false um, reports about how a Japanese official died after drinking water, um, for example. And that was circulated in the uh, in social media, for example. So there has been a lot of, of the fanning of flames, basically. And I think for the Chinese government, this it's Japan, as I agree with um, Ms. Goto, that it was um, that it, it Japan is a, a target that could be used for this purpose. But again, the Chinese government does not want the anger to be um, directed toward them. So at a certain point, it probably has to try to calm things down. OK, but I'm just um, still trying to understand is the kind of let this uh, forgive me here i'm just trying to there's there's i would like to get a little bit more information about the kind of misinformation that we're we're talking about because um i've heard of things like people saying again whether it's through social media or not that for example you shouldn't even buy what cosmetics that are coming from japan because it, they might contain water that was uh you know from the the coastline near fukushima things like that Yes, um, there was certainly um, reports about that. And um, so there was a, a particularly, um, yeah, in the first few days, okay. there were uh, there were a lot of um, misinformation in the um, both official media and um, the uh, social media um, in China, I think. And um, so, again, this it's fanning the flames to a certain extent is probably works for the Chinese authorities, but um, they probably don't want it to be directed against them. I see. Okay. So so we have gotten to that point in the trajectory of this, this issue. But again, because I love uh, examples, um, there's another one. This again is acting director of the Asia program at the Wilson Center, Shihoko Goto. And she described a Chinese phone campaign to destabilize the Japanese tourism industry. What is happening is this. There might be a little bed and breakfast in Japan that the Chinese have gone to a lot where they might focus on promoting seafood. And these small bed and breakfast, small hotels are getting nonstop calls from the Chinese really to disrupt their operations. They can't afford to turn off their phones because they'll lose the legitimate customers. But some are getting like calls every other minute, every other hour. It's very disruptive, 24-7, nonstop, and it's really hurting their business. Now, Naoko, I understand that you lived in China for several years. Is that right? Yes. Yes, I did. And you, you'd seen similar, I don't, I don't know, actions <laughs> or um, yeah, by the um, Chinese I government? Think... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think so. This was a long time ago. So yeah. this was from 2004 to 2009. So social media was not as, you know, an active component of all of this. But I was I did cover as a, I was a journalist in the past and I did cover one of the larger um, anti-Japan protests. And I did see firsthand how, you know, the Chinese government doesn't mind the anger being um, directed toward a foreign um, entity. And um, um, for example, this time, I think there were incidents in which rocks and eggs were thrown at the Japanese school, for example. 
when I was covering the anti-Japan protest, the protesters were um, basically um, picking up um, rocks from the sidewalk and and throwing it to the Japanese embassy. Uh, but it was, um, yeah, and it was tolerated to an ex- to the as long as it was um, directed to mm. the Japanese government. But it sounds like the response this time from the the Chinese government you're saying is over the top, perhaps even for China. Yes, I did think uh, I do think that this was a um, the response was harsh. Um, And I I do think that this is a result of the um, public frustration within China about food safety and environmental problems. For example, they do have economic problems as well. So so. Um, I think it's a reflection of that, too. That is OK. So you've said that a couple of times, but now it's really settling um, in on me. It's really that's really, really interesting. So we have this sort of tale of multiple governments actually trying to really manage um, domestic discontent internally. So in the last minute or so uh, that we have, can, can you tell me, like, what are we here in the United States to to, to learn from what, what's happening in the region there right now when it seems like um, you know, this has all been set off by the necessary decision of what to do with all that treated wastewater from Fukushima? How should yeah. we really understand this moment? You know, I think it's not a bad thing. Um, I mean, this um, furor over all of this is a bad thing, but it's not a bad thing that there is more scrutiny and calls for transparency for for these kinds of, you know, the release of um, water, for example. And um, I think that what the governments can do, all governments can do, is to maintain international standards, be clear and transparent about this, and to explain it both domestically and internationally. And I think that's a lesson for everybody. Well, then in the in the long run, then this the the challenge with Fukushima is not going to end with the release of this treated wastewater. Um, You know, getting back to the trust that the Japanese people have in their government. Do you see um, uh, Japan's future actions or future plans of what we what we know of them regarding Fukushima as satisfactory? Um. So we'll see how the Japanese public reacts to um, you know, the, the release of the water. I mean, there, there are initial reactions, but one, once again, there's a, the, where I um, draw a little bit of comfort is the Japanese public's tr- uh, you know, relative trust mm-hmm. in the international standards, the IAEA. And I think that's the part that we, you know, the authorities can focus on and continue um, explaining, um, you know, and be trans- being transparent about that is important. Well, Naoko Aoki is associate political scientist at the RAND Corporation, specializing in Northeast Asian security issues. She joins us today from Washington. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs> 